0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, debate has been reignited in Connecticut over whether certain voter information should be accessible to anyone. After the president's voter fraud commission asked for all 50 states to voluntarily hand over the information. We'll hear about the concerns being raised in our state and get an update on how the Connecticut secretary of state's office is handling the request by the president's anti-fraud voter commission. That's later. First, you've heard of Auschwitz and Dachau, both Nazi concentration camps where more than a million people died. But have you heard of Ravensbrück? Today, Where We Live, we speak with the author who wrote Lilac Girls. Her book is based on the personal stories of a group of Polish women who were imprisoned at the camp and forced to undergo medical experiments. They were nicknamed the Rabbits. Have you heard of them? Or have you read the book, Lilac Girls? Join the conversation today. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at where we live. Now, this World War II story has a Connecticut connection. To tell us more, we're joined now in studio by author Martha Hall Kelly. Martha, welcome to where we live.
2: Thanks, Lucy.
0: I mentioned your novel, Lilac Girls. It came out last year?
2: Yes, in hardcover, and it just came out in paperback a couple months ago.
0: You live in Connecticut. You're a writer. Was this your first book?
2: Yes. Yes, I had never written anything before, really, except advertising. I was an advertising copywriter for many years, and then I had my third child and became a stay-at-home mom and retired.
0: I mentioned the Connecticut connection. That would be a woman by the name of Caroline Faraday. Take us back to the 30s and the story of this woman. People may not know her. Tell us about her.
2: Oh, she was incredible. I discovered her story one Grey Mother's Day when I went up to the Bellamy Faraday house in, in Bethlehem, Connecticut. I drove up from my home. I was living in Fairfield, Connecticut at the time, and I discovered Caroline, and I couldn't get her out of my head. She was uh, a philanthropist, a, a former Broadway actress, and a very wealthy woman that gave up everything to uh, work for this uh, this cause of bringing the rabbits to America.
0: She was a Francophile, a New York socialite. The summers she spent time, and you mentioned the the Bellamy Faraday house. That's in Bethlehem, Connecticut. We're going to learn more about that house. It's become a Connecticut landmark later in the show. Uh, But tell us about her, her upbringing in Connecticut. Did she spend many of her summers here?
2: She did. Her father, sadly, died when she was 11. And she and her mother spent their summers up in Bethlehem working on their garden. And they collected specimen lilacs from All over the world. And that's why I went up to the house to see the lilacs. And it was not disappointing, but I I came for the lilacs, but I came away with her story. And I started going up there to uh, work in the archives. She has three archives, one in Paris and one in um, Washington, D.C. at the Holocaust Museum. And the third one is at the house. So I started going up there to research her.
0: She's American. Why did she have such an affinity uh, for France? I understand she
2: volunteered at the French consulate during World War II. She did. And she and her mother used to spend August in Paris at their apartment there. And so she had a lot of French friends. And that's how she found out about the rabbits after the war Uh, Some of her French friends that had been incarcerated at uh, Ravensbrück knew these Polish Catholic women that had been operated on, and and they told Caroline about them and how they were suffering behind the Iron Curtain. And Caroline reached out to them, and uh, it it was not an easy task, but she, she ended up bringing them to the United States for rehabilitation and a fabulous trip across the country.
0: What did you know about Ravensbrück concentration camp? This was outside Berlin. Again, I mentioned in the uh, intro, we hear about Auschwitz and Dachau, but Ravensbrück was
2: primarily for women. It was. It was the only female camp in the Third Reich, and uh, the only major one. And I didn't know anything about it either until I started researching in Caroline's archives. And then I was just fascinated. She had done a lot of research, especially on um, the only all-female the only female doctor at the camp, um, Herta Oberhauser. And so I became interested in her by uh, researching in Caroline's archives.
0: These were women that were in prison. What did they do?
2: They were uh, Girl Scouts, sadly, uh, back in Lublin, Poland. And um, they had joined the underground in Lublin. And the youngest was 14. And um, they did it for social reasons, because their friends were doing it. They didn't realize that it was so dangerous. And So they were arrested and uh, sent to Ravensbrück. They were Polish Catholic women, all of them. And um, so I, uh, in researching them, went to Lublin and then took the same train route that the women were forced to take when they were arrested from Warsaw to Berlin and then from Berlin up to Furstenberg to to visit Ravensbrück because I felt I couldn't write about the story without actually seeing it.
0: Uh, in your book, you focus on a particular a woman who was imprisoned at Ravensbrook, uh, Kasia. Tell us about how you um, formulated this character based on the research you did. And then you also mentioned this doctor who worked for uh, the Third Reich, uh, Hertha.
2: I based Kasia. She's the. There are three characters there's Caroline, and then um, uh, Hertha Oberhauser, who's the doctor at the camp that helped perform the experiments, and then Kasia Kuzmarek is a composite character of all the different rabbits. There are 72 of them. and uh, But but she's also based mainly on Nina Avanska, a, a real prisoner who wrote some secret letters that I found out about. I can't say too much about her it because it's a spoiler for the book, but um, I, I loved the story of Nina Vonska and her sister, Christina, who was a doctor when she, went in, when she was arrested as well. So I thought it was fascinating that a doctor would be operated on and how, how she would um, see that situation. Uh, but it was uh, fascinating to write from all three different points of view.
0: Why did you decide to, to tell the story in this way, uh, based on a, a true story but written uh, as fiction?
2: You know, it just kind of happened. I had never written a novel before. Um, I met a book editor one day and told her the story, and she said, this is a novel. You should write it. All I need is a chapter. And I moved to Atlanta and had no friends. Um, And it it all just kind of came out one day when I had a a Starbucks caffeinated latte by by mistake. (laughs) It all just came out. Um, So I didn't really think about it that much. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say. It all just kind of came out.
0: This is where we live, and Studio With Me is author of Lilac Girls, Martha Hall Kelly. She lives in Connecticut. Um, She wrote this book uh, last year, but it's based on uh, a socialite who lived in Connecticut, Caroline Faraday, and how she helped um, many women. um, I think about 35 of them will learn more about uh, that journey they took uh, to the U.S. Um, They were experimented on uh, by the Nazis during World War II at the Ravensbrück concentration camp. We mentioned that they were nicknamed the rabbits, but tell us specifically what kind of experiments that they went through?
2: They were chosen by Himmler to have experiments done to their legs. They were opened up surgically and glass and bacterial cultures and dirt were put into their wounds and they were sewn back up to test the efficacy of sulfa drugs. A lieutenant of Hitler's had been killed and died from gas gangrene and the doctors at the camp were trying to prove to Hitler that the treatment that this lieutenant received because he didn't get sulfur drugs um, was the correct treatment so they they used these women as their laboratory animals
0: so their legs were opened up sometimes their bones were removed
2: yes yes it's just so horrible a lot of them died from the experiments. Because uh, from tetanus and gas Green, but the ones that survived hopped around the camp because their legs had been so terribly uh, mistreated, and that's why the Nazis nicknamed them the rabbits. Mm.
0: We're going to learn more about um, how some of them survived, coming up with a a documentarian who's working on a film about uh, the women at Ravensbrook. But I wanted to learn more about, so Caroline worked again at the French consulate during the war. She heard about the rabbits, and how did she get people to be behind this cause of helping these women?
2: Well, she had heard that Norman Cousins, who was the editor of the Saturday Review, she had heard that he had helped a group of women come to this country called the Hiroshima Maidens who were women suffering after um, the atom bomb. And she went to Norman Cousins at the Saturday Review and said, um, you need to help me with this. bringing these Polish Catholic women here from Lublin. They're suffering, and they need medical attention. And he didn't believe her at first. She left an, a very determined woman, Caroline. Um, she came back the next day with photographs that her French friends had sent her of the women's legs, which are just horrific. And he believed her when he saw that. And he got behind it full bore. And um, both he and Caroline went to Warsaw and um, made sure that, you know, they cut through the red tape and made sure they could come to the United States. They brought doctors with them to make sure the women were healthy enough for the journey. And, yeah, he became her partner, which is just wonderful. He wrote many wonderful articles in the Saturday Review about it.
0: But it didn't stop there, um, besides just getting these some of these women here for medical treatment. Uh, she also worked to try to get reparations for these women from the German yes, government? Yes, How uh, difficult was that at the
2: time? Really difficult, because Germany didn't recognize Poland as a country, because, you know, it was under Soviet Russia. So she worked with a lawyer named Ben Ferenc, and um, eventually did get them reparations, which I think was one of the happiest moments of her life, uh, because she had spent so much time with these women, and they they had come to be like daughters to her. I mean, they called her their godmother, but they really were like daughters to her.
0: It's a really fascinating story. Again, I mentioned you live in Connecticut, Martha. Do you think a lot of people know about Caroline Faraday and her role in helping these women? You know, it's funny. Even after your book came out.
2: It's so funny. Even people that lived in Bethlehem didn't know that this... um, Had happened. And Caroline was a very modest person. She did so many wonderful things, but she didn't like to shine the light on herself. So I guess it's understandable, but it's funny how so many people, they tell me they drove by the house every day. It's now a museum, a beautiful museum. And they never even knew the story.
0: I read the book, and at times it is hard to get through uh, the way that you, again, based on the research you did, describing the the conditions of the camp, what the women went through. How did this impact you?
2: Oh, goodness. Um, Well, just researching Caroline made me think so much more about giving back. And it, it sounds kind of cliche, but it really, it's changed me in that way. I look now for things to do, um, to give back. But it's also, um, I mean, being a writer now has changed me so much and in such a good way. I, I, I can't um, imagine what would have happened if I hadn't gone up to the house that day, because it's, it's, being a writer is so much a part of my life now.
0: You traveled to Germany, you visited Ravensbrück. What was that experience like?
2: Well, I brought my son with me, and um I, I I didn't I think I underestimated how hard it was for him. He, it, at one point, we were um, walking through the prison bunker, which is a really difficult place to be. Um, it's cell upon cell. And um he said, "Mom, I, I need to go out and sit down." And that's when I realized that I had kind of pushed it a little bit, but it was an incredible it's it's an incredible place. and um the crematoria are still there, right next to the lake, so they could toss the ashes into um, into the lake. Uh, the shooting wall is still there that the women were so terrified of. And now people come and since there are no graves for the women that died there, they um, toss red roses into the lake and um, you know, they float out into the lake. and it's it's such a beautiful but sad tribute.
0: Why do you think people haven't heard of Raven Raven's book Concentration Camp?
2: You know, it was a smaller camp, um, and it was in Germany. A lot of the camps that were located in Poland, um, extermination camps, I've been written about extensively. Maybe it's because it was all women. I don't know. Mm. We
0: talked a lot about uh, learning about some of the women that were experimented on, these Polish women. But Herta was a female doctor who was a, was a real person that worked at Ravensbrück that performed these experiments on these women. You chose to write a little bit about her. What do we? What did you learn about her that surprised you?
2: Oh, everything. Well, I I learned about her from Caroline's archives. So I thought it was fascinating that Caroline was interested in Herta. And once I dug into it, I I just couldn't believe that a woman would do that to other women. Um, never mind a doctor, but um, she everything about her fascinated me. I I thought that um, you know she was kind to some of the patients, or I, I, you know it's hard to call them patients, but most of them she mistreated horribly. They were. Um, not given proper medical attention after the experiments, and some of them were operated on uh, the rabbits uh, two and three times. So they suffered horribly, and and she really didn't um, give them much care. Did
0: you have any sympathy for uh, Dr. Herta. At any point, when you learned a little bit about her life, and again, she was trained to be a doctor. Uh, the role, even though she was a, a doctor, how uh, the Nazis um, how they viewed women and their role at home. Did you have any sympathy for her as you learned about her?
2: Well, when I first wrote the book, um, my and I got an agent. She told me, uh, go back and rewrite Herta. Uh, because I had had made her kind of stereotyped and a, a bit of a cliche. And I spent a year studying National Socialism and really getting to the root of that, the BDM, which was the equivalent for women of the Hitler youth, and how it was to be indoctrinated into the Nazi culture. And then I did get much more, I don't know if I'd call it sympathy, but understanding of how a person can go down that path, such a horrible path, because I don't think she started out as a horrible person. And she just ended up in a a really terrible place.
0: You also added a love interest in the novel for Caroline Faraday, again, the socialite who lived in Connecticut. Why did you choose
2: to do that? I resisted that at first. But then I spoke to a close friend of Caroline's, and she told me about a relationship that Caroline had had, a long-distance relationship. And that's when I thought, you know what? I, I can um, go ahead and add a love interest now that I knew that she had that relationship. and of course, I made him you know incredibly attractive. Caroline deserved it, but um, but because I had never seen a photograph of that person, but once I knew she had a relationship, I, I felt like I had uh, permission to do that. What's the response been to your book? Oh my goodness. it's just been incredible. I still am pinching myself. It, it's every day I get emails from people thanking me. And um, it's been on the uh, the bestseller list now, the paperback for, I think, 18 weeks, or I, I've lost count now. But it's really, really um, wonderful. And I'm just so happy because so long I I worked on the book thinking, well, no one will care about this story. This is just me that's so obsessed with it. And It's just so validating to have people love it, too.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is Martha Hall Kelly, author of Lilac Girls. It's a book about socialite Caroline Faraday. She was a Connecticut resident who helped a group of Polish women tortured by the Nazis. Now, coming up, we're going to learn more about the research that Martha did into her book and also talk with an Atlanta filmmaker about her upcoming documentary, Saving the Rabbits of Ravensbrook. Join the conversation. Email Where We Live at WMPR.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy nalpa Today, we're learning about the Connecticut connection to the story of some women held at Ravensbrook concentration camp during World War II. They were a group of more than 70 Polish women who underwent medical experiments nicknamed the Rabbits. It was a socialite, a Connecticut resident by the name of Caroline Faraday, who worked to bring 35 of the survivors to the U.S. and brought attention to their story leading the German government to pay reparations to them for what the Nazis did. Their stories were the basis for a book released last year called Lilac Girls. I've been speaking with author Martha Hall Kelly, who's in the studio with me, also a Connecticut resident. And joining the conversation now is Stacey Fitzgerald. She's a producer and director of an upcoming documentary called Saving the Rabbits of Ravensbrook*. Stacy, welcome to the show. Oh, Thank you. Glad to be here. Tell us about your connection to this story. When did you first hear about it?
3: Um, I first heard about it, it's probably been, Martha, what do you think, five years ago, Uh maybe when we first met. And we actually met through our our husbands, and we were at dinner, and we were talking, and I found out about um, Martha working on this novel. And when she told me um, the story about Caroline, about the rabbits, and about the amazing rescue that happened in the camp, I was... um, yeah, you know, I I really couldn't get it out of my mind. I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And also, I had a family connection. My um, great uncle had helped liberate a woman's concentration camp and had told me about that in the past and asked that I speak up about what he had seen with his own two eyes. And so I think the interest was there, and then I was really blown away um, by this story of, that, again, not only the rabbits and um, Carolyn Faraday's role, but how the women in the camp themselves rallied around this uh, this group of injured women um, to save their lives.
0: I asked Martha earlier uh, why she thinks many people don't know about Ravensbrück Concentration Camp and about the, the story of these women nicknamed the rabbits. Why do you think that is?
3: Um. <laughs> You know, I know maybe part of it was the fact that it was, um, Ravensbrück fell in what became East Germany, and so access wasn't necessarily as, I guess, easy um, for folks to get to, to, to study. Um, I do, I think Martha also brings up a good point that, um, you know, people were studying uh, other camps, and I don't, I'm not sure that there was necessarily the interest before to study a woman's concentration camp. As she said, it was a smaller camp, and it was all women. And I think um, that, that 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 was probably part of it as well.
0: Tell us about the research then that uh, that you undertook. You mentioned that this this documentary uh, is not just about the the women, the rabbits, but the other women who worked to save them. Tell us about them.
3: Um, Yes, I thought, um, you know, you'd imagine the conditions uh, of a concentration camp. And when this rescue took place, it was, you know, February 1945, right at the end of the war. And you'd think, finally, these women who were starving to death and sick um, would think, wow, finally light at the end of the tunnel. And yet the fact that they risked their lives or shared their bread with um, these Young girls to save their their life right there at the end. I was really struck by that, and so I did search for. Uh, I read all the accounts that I could of um, anybody who had been part of the rescue, the women themselves um, who were saved. But I, I did find um, one of the women in the French Resistance who was a very close friend of Nina Wanska, one of the Polish uh, women that Mar- Martha mentioned earlier, um, and she was part of the rescue herself. And um, I was able to go to Paris and interview her and ask her, you know, why uh, she and so many others. um, And and was that true? Was it everybody in the camp? You know, it was 20 different nations. Women were in there for all sorts of reasons. So maybe primarily uh, most of them were political prisoners meaning they were in some form of resistance against the Nazi regime, but there were criminals. Um, there were people there because they were Jewish. There were all these different reasons. So how do you get all these women from different religions, different countries, different political beliefs to come together? And, you know, she explained, she said, yeah, they were struck by it. I mean, she, for herself, she was almost offended, like, what other choice would I have had? Of course I would have risked my life to, to save them um and and she was with them there that final night as they thought they were going to be executed now they were preparing to be um executed and um and then as this idea started to form hey why don't give in you need to fight we need to continue to to resist let's try to figure out a way to to hide you and and convince a lot of the rabbits had to be convinced that they should try to hide and try to live.
0: Stacey, um, you, you interviewed some of the surviving uh, rabbits. I just wanted to play a quick clip from your documentary, Saving the Rabbits of Ravensbrook. Um, here is a woman named Stasia.
2: So she's speaking
0: in Polish. Can you tell us uh, what she's saying about Caroline Faraday? That was the question to her about this woman that worked to save them.
3: Yes, she said Caroline Faraday was a friend of hers, that she became a friend, um, and that Caroline Faraday was a good person. And then she um, mentioned, she said she was um, impatient, <laughs> but, a, but a good person. And, you know, I, I also have the benefit for everything else she described before, but she kind of sums it up at the end when she said she wanted to change the world in a day. And that was the source of her impatience. I think that all the women, when they talk about Carolyn Faraday, because I, uh, I am also asked another of uh, the survivors about Caroline, and, and she talked about, again, just what a great person that she was and that she sought to get nothing out of it for herself. It, it was not about recognition. It was only about helping people. And that was the satisfaction
0: that she got. I understand Stasia passed away just a few weeks after you interviewed her. How many women, uh, these so-called rabbits, are still alive today?
3: Two. Two of the rabbits.
0: And how did you get them to open up to you considering the trauma, uh, the language barrier?
3: I think for one reason, I think the reason they agreed to do the interview in the first place is because they do believe it was their, their duty to bear witness. That was one of the promises that they made to each other in the camp, that they would bear witness. But that being said, it still was difficult, because I think they were still traumatized um, from the experience. So they would you know, start talking about it and, and tell us their story, but then once you started to ask them more specifics, it was hard for them, but they were, very, they were very courageous. They found they might have to deflect a little bit, maybe back off, tell, tell you to give them a moment, but then they, they powered through, and I, I do believe they felt it was important for us today to hear what they had been through and to hear how they had overcome those circumstances.
0: I'm speaking with Stacey Fitzgerald. She's a producer and director of an upcoming documentary uh, called Saving the Rabbits of Ravensbrook." Uh, Caroline Faraday, a New York socialite who lived in Connecticut, Bethlehem, Connecticut, helped bring 35 of these women to the U.S. for medical treatment. Stacy, when you spoke with the, the, these, uh, these two or three women that were still alive uh, at the time when you were in Europe uh, doing research and, and filming, uh, did they hold on to resentment for what the Nazis did to them?
3: No, I think that was one of the surprising things that Martha and I both, um, Martha, um, I went over twice, and Martha came with me my first trip and, um, to meet these women and to talk to them. But amazingly, no, and I, I know that um, Stasha spoke to that uh, directly, and she talked about something they learned in the camp, and that was that you really only knew in the, in the camp you probably had five minutes. I mean, that's the only thing you could count on was the next five minutes. And then your life could change forever. And she said, so why waste any of that five minutes with bitterness or anger or resentment? She said they tried to fill it with joy, with friendship, with, with things um, that made that time valuable. And she also made the point that she goes, and I, she goes, I know you think that this is going to sound crazy, but we tried to find things to laugh about, even in that horrific place, Even no matter what we were going through. Um, we tried to find things that made us laugh. And believe it or not, we, we could. We did. And that helped us get through. Mm. And they, I think they brought that attitude, and she talked about that after the camp. There's just no time for anger and resentment.
0: Martha Hall Kelly is in studio with us. Uh, she's the author of Lilac Girls. Um, she was working with Stacia on this, this documentary. Uh, Martha, what was it like to talk as well to some of these surviving women that were tortured during World War II and to see years later how um, they've persevered um, and have been
2: resilient? Oh, it was incredible. I mean, that was my number one wish in life was to to just meet them. And so when Stacy and I went back over uh, for my second trip and we had a chance to talk to them, oh, it was just in, incredible. And the way they were received at the camp was beautiful. Don't you think, Stacy? Oh, yeah. It yeah. was so nice to see young people just, like, swamping them. Stasha was in a wheelchair, and young people were coming up to her and taking selfies and hugging and kissing her, and it was just such a beautiful thing, especially because she that was... Um, she was that age when she was operated on at the camp. So it was wonderful to see it come full circle.
0: And Stacey Fitzgerald, again, producer and director of Saving the Rabbits of Ravensbrook. I want to play one more clip from your upcoming documentary. Uh, This was a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Ferenz. He's talking about Caroline Faraday, again, this Connecticut resident who worked to bring some of these Polish women to the U.S. He's talking about uh, when Caroline first uh, approached him uh, to try and get uh, reparations for from the German government
4: for these women. She said, well, uh, I have been with a group of women who were in the concentration camp in Ravensbrück. You managed to negotiate with the Germans about paying compensation to all of the victims of Nazi persecution. They were clearly victims of persecution because they were subjected to all kinds of horrible medical experiments, but they were excluded, and they wanted to know how could they get compensation. They were all poor girls now living in Poland, who had been stripped of everything. Well, I said your information you have about their legal claim is correct. Uh, there is no provision in the German law to cover cases of people who, with whom Germany had no diplomatic relations, which meant simply we were not going to send money into communist territory. At that time, Senator MacArthur was screaming that everybody was a communist. That was a, a, a mission impossible on his face. Well, I like missions impossible if they were right.
0: And so Benjamin Ferencz was one of the prosecutors uh, that helped uh, get these reparations eventually to these Polish women, Stacy.
3: Yes, he, um, Carolyn Faraday, um, he uh, said in, in another part of that conversation that um, people had said, you know, he's the one you need to go talk to, and and he, I, you know, she talked to him about it, he took on the case, and not just, he he did have all of the connections with the German government, and he knew who to talk to, and I think he understood how to try to apply pressure, but he was also part of that pressure was a PR campaign that Norman Cousins then um, helped carry out, so the women came over for the medical treatments, but then they were able to take them around the country, and they um, took, them to, took them to cities that might have had um, a lot of um, people of Polish background. Um, and they were able to, as newspapers picked up this story and talked about these women, what they'd been through, and what the, that the West German government wasn't taking any responsibility for it at all, it um, then put pressure on those Congressman that ben, ben had them um send a letter um to uh, to the diplomats the uh, west german diplomats here in this country and and it worked um they finally realized that it wasn't a financial matter that this was a political issue and it was doing horrific things to the reputation of the the new west german government and they needed to to um Recognize what they had done to the women and pay the rep, pay them reparations.
0: Stacy, uh, quickly, when will your documentary be uh, released?
3: Hopefully next year. We've got the bulk of the filming done. We have some uh, a couple of follow up interviews to do and some subject matter uh, experts, and then then we just work on on finishing it and um, hopefully have it out next year.
0: We've been talking about the role of a woman who lived in Connecticut, Caroline Faraday, uh, in helping these Polish women, again, who were uh, experimented on by the Nazis during World War II. Uh, Caroline Faraday's family home is now open to the public. I wanted to bring to the conversation Cheryl Hack, Executive Director of Connecticut Landmarks. Cheryl, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you so much, Lucy. We've been remarking about uh, not many people know about Caroline Faraday. Tell us about uh, where her home is in Connecticut, understand Bethlehem, Connecticut, and what will people learn when they visit this home?
5: Her home is right across from the green in Bethlehem, Connecticut, uh, where the Reverend Bellamy built it in 1754. And uh, the Faraday family arrived in Bethlehem, and Martha had mentioned earlier, I think, uh, to find a summer place. Uh, to get out of the heat in New York. In 1912, they purchased the property, and they really um, developed beautiful gardens as well as uh, making some colonial revival changes to the house to accommodate their their needs.
0: Since uh, Martha Hall Kelly's book has come out, again, Lilac Girls, have you seen interest in the Bellamy Faraday home grow, Sharon? Oh,
5: my goodness. You know, people are so interested in stories, and um, so interested in heroism. And as I think Stacy and, and Martha have so beautifully um, shared with listeners today, my goodness, Caroline was a social justice rock star. So uh, we have seen many, many people um, coming to the property to learn more about her and to really enjoy the beautiful gardens and very peaceful settings that she created.
0: We were remarking in the newsroom, Cheryl, many people may not know about uh, the Ravensbrook Rabbits. When someone visits this house, how are they told about this story?
5: So there's the opportunity to um, view the house really through Caroline's eyes. Um, so Caroline was very interested in Reverend Bellamy. He and, and, um, acquired many of, of his family artifacts. So there's, there's that piece in the house. Um, but there are also many, many very special items of hers, like um, where she prayed, <laughs> her her um, Russian icons, the um, images of the, the Robinsbrook women who came back to and were brought to the property. So, you know, we're, we're really looking to um, present Caroline from uh, the point of view of her broader work and her broader life that led up to this, this work.
0: Well, I want to thank uh, Cheryl Hack. She's the executive director of Connecticut Landmarks. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And then also uh, Stacey Fitzgerald, a producer and director of Saving the Rabbits of Ravensbrook. Stacey, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. And I'll quickly go back to author Martha Hall Kelly in studio with me. Again, author of Lilac Girls. What are you working on next?
2: I um, have two prequels that Random House uh, just acquired, and they go back in time to tell the pre-story behind Lilac Girls. And the first one is called *Jin Lane, and it features Caroline's mother, Eliza Faraday, and her help to um, uh, help the white Russians. Uh, I just got back from Russia a few months ago uh, researching there, and uh, I think it's a fascinating story. And then the third book, the second prequel, takes place in the Civil War, and it um, is based on the life of Caroline's great-grandmother, Eliza Jane Wolseley, who was a nurse on the Gettysburg battlefield.
0: So we'll look for both of those uh, prequels coming up. Again, Martha Hall Kelly, author of Lilac Girls. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathangel. Now, coming up, we're going to shift a little. Do you know how much of your personal information is online? Efforts by the Trump administration to seek personal voter information to investigate fraud has raised questions about how much voter information is available in Connecticut. Greg Gladke from The Hartford Current will tell us more after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbeth The Hartford Current reported recently that some Connecticut lawmakers and election officials will renew efforts to restrict public release of some of the personal information on voters. Why now? Joining us is Greg Ladke, reporter for the Hartford Current. Welcome back to the show.
1: Glad to be with you. So
0: tell us first if we're registered voters, how much of our information is available out there?
1: Almost everything that you put on the uh, when you register to vote. It is public information right now um, your home address your party affiliation the uh, in some cases if you supplied your telephone number that's also there also uh, it will show you where how often you have voted in recent elections it won't say, they can't say who you voted for but they can say uh, so Joe Smith voted in uh, the 2016 election he voted in the, the one before that. For politicians, it's very valuable. For a lot of voters, it's a big surprise to find out that you can go on the internet right now and uh, get all this information.
0: Your birth date as well?
1: Your birth date as well. That's one of the big issues uh, right now for lawmakers and uh, public officials um, because they worry that, uh, as one uh, ACLU official said, it could be a uh, identity theft kit if you can get somebody's address and their and their uh, date of birth, you can do a lot of damage.
0: Give us an idea of, maybe listeners will be freaking out when they hear this, what kind of websites can they go to to get this information?
1: There's a website that uh, has been uh, put up by a gentleman in New Hampshire. He calls it a genealogical website. But his, his argument is that this is free public information. It should be free to everybody. Um, there are political websites that will charge you a fee to get all kinds of information. They use your date of birth, your address, your voting record, your party affiliation uh, to profile voters so that candidates can go and target them for information, for phone calls, things like that. You can also file a Freedom of Information request with the state and get this, uh, this kind of information on people. And The idea is that you want to prevent voter fraud, that the government can look at a date of birth and make sure that uh, Joe Smith from uh, Bridgeport isn't the same Joe Smith who, who voted in Hartford. Mm-hmm. So that's the idea behind it. But uh, there are some restrictions in Connecticut, but very few. Um, law enforcement officers can have their home addresses removed. Um, certain types of crime victims, uh, sexual assault victims, people who are... Uh, victims of stalkers can also apply to have their their addresses kept secret. But there are other much broader restrictions in other states. And some of those um, lawmakers here would like to copy, I think.
0: If an individual wanted to get their information off uh, some of those websites you mentioned, can they just contact them and get them off or no?
1: They can. uh, The New Hampshire website, um, they have a process for getting your name and your uh, your confidential information off the website. Uh, But it's Involved, and it you can't do it online. You have to send a letter, a certified letter, uh, so that somebody else isn't withdrawing your information from that website. Um, As for far as the political websites, I'm not so sure. I uh, did not contact them, so uh, presumably you could you could ask them to keep it confidential.
0: And this has been brought up before, but why now? Related to this Trump commission?
1: Yes. Uh, the, uh, the request by the Kobach commission, uh, Trump's anti-voter fraud commission, has uh, stirred up a lot of anxiety among voters. Connecticut Secretary of the State, Denise Merrill, the top election official here, said she's gotten hundreds of uh, emails from voters saying, don't send my information to the Trump administration. Critics of Trump and his his people like Chris Kobach, the chairman of this co-chairman of this commission, uh, say that they they're looking to uh, suppress voter turnout, uh, particularly for minorities. Um, they deny that. They say this is only looking at voter fraud. But there is uh, nothing to back up so far in anywhere in the U.S. Uh, the Trump administration's claims that millions of people have been voting illegally in in the U.S.
0: Now we reached out to Secretary of State Denise Merrill uh, to join us, but because of a scheduling conflict, she couldn't. But walk us through again when this uh, request came out from this commission, this anti-fraud, voter fraud commission under the Trump administration for this information. The Connecticut, how was, what was her response? And has that been walked back a little bit?
1: It has been. Initially, she said she was very suspicious of the, of the request for all this information. Uh, she wasn't going to supply and couldn't supply things like the last four digits of the social, people's voter social security numbers, which was one of the things that the Kobach commission suggested be supplied. But she also pointed out at the time that under Connecticut law, this is public information. If you file the proper request and you pay a fee, if you, you, can, if you pay a $300 fee, you can get the entire state voter roll. Within a week, uh, Denise Merrill walked that back, as you put it, uh, saying she doesn't want to cooperate at all, um, that she hasn't had a a formal request. But the truth is, according to Freedom of Information officials here in Connecticut, if they make a formal request right now under state law, she can't deny them that information.
0: Do we know yet if that has happened?
1: It hasn't happened yet. The Kobach Commission is being sued by one group. Um, And apparently that's uh, caused them to put a hold on their requests. Uh, At least 44 states have refused or are uh, refusing in part to cooperate, which has prompted Trump to say, what are they hiding? Um, The concern from a lot of these state officials, including Denise Merrill, is that this information could be used in ways that it was not intended for that it could be used to as for political purposes or voter suppression purposes. So that's uh, that controversy has generated a lot of concern and renewed interest in just how do we protect this uh, voter information.
0: What are you hearing from lawmakers um, to, to try to strengthen this law, to keep them, maybe the birth date and other information private?
1: Yes. Uh, May Flexer is uh, co-chair of the uh, legislature's general uh, administration elections committee she would like to see birth dates redacted or kept private merrill has also suggested that uh, other lawmakers have said well let's not let anybody put it up on the on the internet uh, but all these suggestions have run into problems in the past one problem is that if you try to redact or keep secret people's information like birth dates that have already been supplied and been public in the past, it becomes very. It could become very confusing and costly. The state librarian uh, said that he has 365 cubic feet of election records dating back hundreds of years. If there's a law saying he can't release dates of birth that are included in there, he's going to have a real mess on his hands and a costly, complex, difficult situation. So it's not as simple as or we're just not going to give out the information.
0: Now, a lot of focus, again, on protecting uh, the information of voters. Um, the state has yet to, to pass a budget. I think there's a vote maybe next week. Uh, but I understand uh, calls for allowing early voting in the state of Connecticut. Has that gone nowhere this session? Can you update us on that?
1: I can't. I'll be honest with you. I haven't uh, been looking at that. When I've looked at the legislature, it's all been about budgets and money. The early voting issue keeps coming up over and over again because so many other states have have approved that. Um, I think it's probably, I'm sure it's coming just because people, if you can vote early, you can get more people involved. But there again, one of the issues that was uh, brought up about dates of birth is that these early ballots or absentee ballots always require dates of birth to be put on them. Mm -hmm. And how do you separate that from public information if you're checking for voter fraud. Connecticut has had some some history in the past of absentee voter fraud in in places like New Haven and Bridgeport.
0: Because of the issues you raise, Greg, is it likely that there'll be any changes then to Connecticut law?
1: I think that there is this push for uh, redacting the birth dates Um, probably has some legs to it. It's just one of those deals especially in this uh, day of um, identity theft, that I think an awful lot of people are going to say, well, why do we need to do that? Can't we keep that at least secret? So I think that may, that may uh, sail, and not, not this year, but probably next year it will be brought up and have a lot of support in the legislature.
0: I've been speaking with Greg Ladke, reporter for The Hartford Current. We'll tweet out a, a link to your most recent story. Greg, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Special thanks to WMPR intern Tim Cohen. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. You can learn more about our show at WMPR.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.